Some of you might be familiar with Tibetan art, with the tankas, the, the mandalas that... and this is true in temples too, that have these gods and goddesses and demons, these wrathful deities and fearsome deities that are kind of around the periphery. And then if you make your way towards the center, there's this kind of space that really represents sacred space. And the message of the tankas, the mandalas, and the, the forms in the temple are really quite... Um, it's a powerful message, which is that for each of us, if on this pathless path of arriving here, the, the process is really to encounter those shadow elements that have not yet been seen or been included and in the meeting and in the including and in the embracing and being with those elements we arrive in the fullness of who we are. So um, we'll explore this some tonight, this process of homecoming, but what I'd like to emphasize, because this is where we go into a trance the most quickly, is that when things get difficult we take it very personally we think that something's wrong with what's happening, we think the spiritual path is somewhere else. Whereas the wisdom of these Tibetan art expressions is really that that is where the path is, that when we're taking it very personally and when it's a tangle, when the um, deities are in full bloom, that that is the gateway, it's the presence with in those moments that actually unfolds our deepest truth, our deepest fullness, our deepest expression of spirit. It's through the personal that we experience the universal. It's not like that's something we want to step aside or get rid of. And as we've been exploring these last few weeks, I'd like to talk about how the practices of presence, what we've been calling RAIN, this recognizing and allowing and getting intimate with our experience, can allow us to move through the personal to the sacred, to the sacred that's embedded in the personal, just not recognized. The poet Iku, he says, how many times do I have to say this? You can't be other than you are and where? How many times do I have to say this? You can't be other than you are and where. It's this beingness in all its messiness and confusion and sorrow and anger, it's through this beingness, right here, not somewhere else, that we really find what we most long for. One friend says, we're not free to be ourselves, we're forced to be ourselves. This is what we've got. <laughs> and we each have these, our own package of, um, it's all universal, but its own flavor of, of tangles, of cultural woundings and family woundings and our genetic endowment of whether we're particularly nervous and worried or always restless or seeking novelty or whatever it is. Ramdas, some of you might remember Ramdas. He says he sees his personality as a pet. And he says he, he doesn't take it personally, and sometimes he lets it off the leash, you know. It's all, it's all natural. But the thing is that we do regard these, whatever we're kind of incarnated with, very personally. It feels sometimes like 
an oppressive burden, our particular um, tangle of the way we strive or fear or clutch. Daniel Goleman wrote um, Emotional Intelligence, amongst other things, and Social Intelligence, he studies, and he says that when it's not a life or death issue, our default position of mind is to compare ourselves with each other. That's our default position, is to see where we are in the pecking order. We're constantly going, I'm, who's more powerful, you or me? Who's more attractive? Who's more intelligent? Who's more successful? Who this moment is more in power? There's just this, it's just part of our psychobiology to do this comparing. And um, we can never be where we want to be. I mean, we're herd animals. And again, this one friend of mine says, to be human is to feel inferior. (laughs) Or superior, but underneath that's a feeling of, I need to feel superior because I'm inferior. (laughs) So, So what I'm talking about really is this what we call sometimes eyeing and mying, how we move through our day with a sense of being separate and kind of possessing different attributes or different problems, trying to make it through the day and get better in some way. And what comes up from the different brains we have, from the reptilian brain, in this eyeing and mying is this kind of computation. Am I safe? Am I not safe? It's always going on. It feels very personal. And then, of course, the mammalian brain is, you know, how do I fit in? Am I good enough? Am I not good enough? So I bring all this up because the spiritual path isn't about eliminating these brains or eliminating this conditioning that wants and fears and wants to be higher in the pecking order and wants to feel safer. It's really about getting, oh, so this is what's going on this moment, this kind of tangle or twist or trap and then bringing presence to what feels so personal. When we're taking it personally, how can we get more present? So again, we'll be um, exploring that, how to kind of come home to the universal when it feels so personal using this practice of RAIN. And if you're brand new, don't worry, it's, it's um, pretty intuitive that RAIN, the R, is just to recognize, pause and recognize R, what's happening. And you can do it right now, we'll just kind of do a brief RAIN of what's happening. So you just kind of close your eyes and go, okay, so right now, my mind is chewing on these ideas, my body's a little tight in the hips, or my heart's pounding fast, or excited, interested, anxious. So recognize. The A is allow. Okay, so that's how it is. To not try to make it different. The I is where we spend some more time getting present because the I is taking the recognize and the allow and dropping it deeper, getting more intimate with what's going on. So here we are, we're recognizing, we're allowing. So what does it mean to get really intimate with the experience? To really, another word for I would be inquire, like what's it really like right now? What's happening in my body? What mood? Is there something I'm believing? That's the I. 
it's learning to stay. The N of rain is described as non-identification. What felt personal, we now kind of are in an awareness that sense it as, oh, it's just sensations, sounds, thoughts. In other words, our being isn't in the clutch of something. We're not identified. Instead, the other word for N, there's a natural awareness. We've come home again. Now, the Buddha began um, teaching about suffering when he described in the Noble Truths the first truth, which is, we all suffer. Everybody gets caught. Everybody takes it personally. Everybody gets caught in the reaction and feels restless and uneasy and not okay. I mean, that's just part of being incarnated in a body. And the second truth is, here's why. It's because we believe we're separate. We get caught in believing we're separate. And when we believe we're separate, we feel like there's something else we need. We have to defend ourselves against things. And then our life becomes, we start acting out of that identity. And we know it, we feel self-centered. We get kind of fixated in going through the day, how am I going to be more comfortable? How am I going to take care of this problem? What if that goes wrong for me? It's very me, me, me. And often when we act out of that eyeing and mying, we end up, when we take it all real personally, we ended up creating more suffering for others. Somebody sent me this recently. Some neighbors heard that little Nancy, the girl next door, was in the garden filling a hole in. And so they peered over the fence at their little neighbor, curious to see what she was doing. What are you up to? they asked. Well, my goldfish died, little Nancy replied, without looking up. I've just buried him. The neighbor said, but that's an awfully big hole for a little goldfish, isn't it? Nancy patted down the last heap of earth. She said, that's because he was inside your cat. (laughs) Now, I think that's an awful, awful little story. (laughs) Really terrible. But the extreme of self-centeredness, and we think everything's mine and I, and we really forget. And here's where it gets more... I apologize a little, because it's really... It's a little weird, I know. (laughs) We forget that other people's lives matter to them that other people are also trying to get through the day, that other people are dealing with a stomach ache or with somebody in their family that they're in conflict with. We, We forget. We really forget. That's our trance. The more we're taking things personally, the less we can see the truth that each being is living a life that matters to them, Each being is comparing and wanting to feel better in the pecking order. Each being is dealing with that fundamental reptilian brain that makes them feel unsafe. We forget. One of the basic things we find if we start really looking at how we deal with, how we're navigating, and I mention this a lot, is that we each have developed strategies to... Um, get through the day that make us feel better about feeling unsafe or not good enough. And we, every one of us has strategies. And and usually they're doings that we do to prove that we're okay. We all do it. It's like when we really stop being busy 
when we stop in some way um, accomplishing things, there's this existential angst because in some way there's an, this thing propels us that never enough. I need to do one more thing to be okay or, or prove this to that person or in some way there's always we're still a little bit in the red. So we hitch ourselves very much to um, this sense of if we're being a good person or an accomplished person or a successful person or a spiritual person but there's this sense of how we're being. Somebody sent, the same person sent me this. I'm just warning you. <laughs> the children had all been photographed and the teacher was trying to persuade them each to buy a copy of the group picture. Just think how nice it will be to look at it when you're all grown up and you can say, there's Jennifer, she's a lawyer. Or that's Michael, he's a doctor. And a small voice at the back of the room rang out, and there's the teacher, she's dead. (laughs) So these very temporary identities we hitch to, yeah? So what happens for each of us is we have these strategies and then we get identified with them. And we take ourselves to be this character, this character that we call self that does these things and is successful here and actually is covering up another failure. And we believe that's who we are. I sometimes call it a spacesuit self, like all our strategies and all our ways of being in the world. We think we're that and we forget the awareness that's peering through. We forget who's listening. We forget this kind of unnameable mystery of presence because we're so much in that story of this little character. And there's suffering in that forgetting because any time that we are identified with a sense of being that's less than the truth, there's suffering. It's like everything in us wants to know the wholeness and live from the wholeness of what we are, live from the love and we know when we're holding back love. Maybe not consciously in the moment, but we know when we're with others and on some level we're locked in an idea of a self-conscious self, you know, and we're not really in that spontaneity or openness. We know that. We know when we're not free to to play or to really take in the beginning um, whiffs of spring or we know when we're caught. Not necessarily consciously, as I said, but whenever we're identified with that character called self that's trying to get through the day, get somewhere, there's something in us that knows that we're not at home in our fullness. Now this isn't to say that it's not totally natural and alive to have projects and activities and particular things we're doing. It is. But what I'm talking about is getting lost in that so that we forget some essential mystery. It's like John O'Donohue, who passed away about six months ago, described it, that we're so busy managing and controlling things so that we cover over the mystery that's here. The sign, there's not a sense of wonder, there's not a sense of play, and there's not a kind of tender quality. But some of the signs, there's more. What happens mostly when we forget is that 
there's a buildup of what I'm calling the shadow deities in this mandala that the more we're disconnected from that loving and from that awareness the more we're identified with this small kind of self the more we're living in the fear and the grasping of that self the shadow deities and that's when we start sensing we're taking things very personally we're reactive, we're stuck so these are the, these are the signposts that's we know we're identified and that's when with this mandala that I'm talking about that's the gateway now you're going to have your own version of the deities for some it'll be that you keep recycling in a conflictual relationship into a place of really feeling very defensive and oppressed and another person will find that your shadow deity is that you're just caught in a compulsive addictive behavior you're just constantly having to eat when you know it's, it's harming yourself so it's the shadow, that's the shadow deity most of us have multiples, you know <laughs> we've got many of them so that's the beginning reflection for you tonight is to sense, you know, and you might just close your eyes and sense so in my life right now what, what's asking for attention? what are the circumstances where there's really some reactivity where I start taking things really personally where you're really kind of identified in smallness and it might be that you get identified in a way that makes you feel very angry towards someone or you get identified in a way that you get very insecure or maybe it's self-aversion it might be, the context might be a relationship with another it might be work it might be something to do with cultural oppression so where do the deities, the the difficult deities really spring forth for you? and we'll take some time as part of our closing meditation to just bring what we're exploring together and really see if we can find a little more freedom come home to the center in the face of that and and if you didn't locate a shadow deity, don't worry they're there (laughs) and something will come up and if it doesn't, it's an interesting inquiry as you leave here so as I mentioned, the beginning is to begin to get more awake to these situations in our life where we clearly have been caught in the trance and where we're clearly reactive and value them go, okay, so this is the gateway where I'm taking it really personal this is the place where I have an opportunity to learn I work with couples and they'll come in with where they're really snagged in a a cyclical reactivity and one of them is pushing away and the other is wanting more and they'll both be thinking this is really a problem that's the gateway that's where each one of them if they can be more present has the opportunity to deconstruct some of that identity that for a lifetime has been a trap the stuck place when we bring presence is the place of freedom so with rain we say oh, okay, so that's the stuck place and we say, okay, allow it rather than think this is bad this shouldn't be happening, let it be there and then we start dropping in 
As one friend today I was just talking to said is having the challenge of a very sick mother and a really you know, difficult situation, I just want to be able to stay. Like not mentally or physically leave, I just want to be able to stay. Because we can intuit that if we're always leaving what's difficult, we're always going to be armored. So how do we stay? And that's where the eye of intimacy comes in, how we get more intimate with a situation how we start really recognizing, oh, so this is what's layered under there. This is what I haven't been willing to to feel. Or this is what I've been believing. Usually we don't know that we're we're carrying this belief that really keeps us really tight. So I'm going to give you two examples tonight of getting more intimate when the deities rear their heads. And hopefully something will be relevant in one of the examples just to give you a better feeling for rain. And the first one is a woman I was working with some years ago and she was a mom and she had a son who came out in, as he was a preteen, as being gay. And he in many ways wasn't kind of in the norm. He was musical and he wasn't academic and he was interested in stuff that nobody else was interested in in terms of um, musical, music history and and, um, very creative guy. And she was worried as all get out. I mean, she, it just freaked her out. She was freaked out. And the way it would come out is she was very controlling and always trying to get him to work with tutors and work on his academics and try to get him to do the sports that he never, ever, ever wanted to do. And um, she was very anxious, very, very anxious. So we started practicing rain. Okay, so anxious, getting very controlling, afraid. Okay, let's let that be. Let's just let that be here. And then we went into the get intimate with this. Inquire. Use that word if that helps you. Recognize, allow, investigate. Investigate. So we started investigating and and I said, what are you believing? And her deep down belief was that something was wrong with him and that something wrong was going to give him a life of pain. Then I said, okay, so keep investigating. What does it feel like to believe that? And as she felt into that, she felt fear. And then in addition to the fear, the sense of distance and loss. And then she started weeping. Oh, if I believe that, I lose my connection. If I make you wrong, I lose my connection with you. And so she started weeping. And I kept keeping her, stay with this, stay with this so that she could start saying, is it really true? Is something really wrong with this person I love? And, and the more she inquired into that, she started asking the question, really, who are you? And what she got was this amazing kind of radiance and light and creativity. She saw the honesty that was shining through her son and the enormous kindness and integrity she got intimate with what was, she was afraid of, with the fearful deities, and underneath that she came home to a sense of, really, truth for her. Now I want to just put in that part of getting intimate with our experience is finding out what we're believing. It's a powerful question to ask at any time, to say, what am I really believing? Especially when you're suffering. Because you'll find out and check this out, don't take my word for it, but you'll find out 
that you're believing either that something's wrong with me or something's wrong with you. And these beliefs, we believe them because emotionally we think they're going to help us. She was believing that because she thought, if I keep holding on to this belief, maybe I'll make him different so then he can have a happy life. It doesn't mean the belief's true, but emotionally it feels true because we think it's helping us. And it's not until we get in our bodies that the belief is keeping us in prison that we'll let go. So getting intimate means to recognize the belief and then feel how that's living in our body. Oh, when I believe something's wrong with you, it creates distance. It stops love. Oh, ouch. Then you can start saying, well, what's really true? Who are you really? For this woman, when she became intimate with that and when she started really meditating with that, there was a powerful thing that happened in her relationship with her son. She went from being the, the mirror that was saying, something's wrong with you, to this mirror that was saying, you know, you've got an awesome spirit. The end of the story is he's now at Berkeley School of Music and doing terrific and he's got a wonderful partner and he's, he's great. It's powerful what we mirror to each other. One of the questions that I asked her would be, was at one point, what would it be like to not believe that anymore? What would it, and, and this is a question to any of us, what's it like to not believe that something's wrong? If right now you could just try this on to just sense, what would it be like to not believe that there's anything wrong with you? For her, the first response was, I wouldn't know who I was anymore. In other words, the whole role of mother, controlling mother, mother trying to take care of making things right, it all topples. So explore that for yourself, because that's part of getting intimate with what's here, is what's it like to not believe something? So that's one example that for her, when she started getting intimate with the belief and the feelings underneath, she arrived at a place of loving where no longer was she identified as this controlling mother that thought something was wrong. She deconstructed the identity. She reached the N of RAIN, which is it's not personal. It's not identified. There's a, she re-inhabited a naturalness, okay? Now, Sometimes the deities are really wrathful, are really fearsome. And when we start doing the I, the intimacy, there needs to be a tremendous amount of warmth because otherwise it's not safe enough to go near them. And I want to let my second story be a story about when you encounter the deities that are really scary, where you're, something is just, it could be near to panic, where there's a huge rage. How do you learn to stay? That's another word for intimacy. How do you learn to stay then? And I'll first share with you Hafiz, he says, How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. 
Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So, in some way, when we're scared, when we're closed down, when the deities of fear have us in a grip, there has to be a way of bringing some light, some warmth, to make it safe enough to open up. And I get the question a lot, when I'm really scared and I'm told to meet that fear with love, how can I? I'm already scared, I don't have the love accessible. Okay? Does that make sense? It's like, how do we hold ourselves with love when we're feeling totally scared? And one response is to practice the loving-kindness meditation when we're not afraid so it becomes a habit. Okay? So I have one woman that I was working with this week who has suffered from bipolar disorder and from panic attacks and about four years ago she made her main practice offering phrases of care to herself just in a almost like mechanical way. She picked four phrases that were really a sign of caring about herself. You know, may I be free of fear, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. May. And she just got into the habit of repeating them and repeating them and gradually she connected with the place in her that really wished that for herself. So she started getting in touch with a place of care. And so that the times when she would get gripped by fear that care was a little more accessible. So that's one response of how do you bring more of the warmth into intimacy. Is It's like um, before you go out and have a street fight, go practice in the gym or something. It's like, you know, it's like build the strength of the loving kindness on the sidelines. But I want to talk about another way also. Because the love is such an intrinsic part of who we are that there really is a natural homecoming to it. And there's ways that we can call on love or intend or want love that bring us back to love. Okay? So my second example tonight. And this is a man who um, is in one of the IMCW uh, spiritual friends groups who said I could share this story. Uh, The spiritual friends groups are KM groups, Kalyana Mitta. And he came to meditation. He started coming here to put his life together. He said, he said that he, his wife had left him for another man and her reason, she said, was that he was totally incapable of emotional intimacy. So it was devastating and he was obsessed about how wrong he was and how bad he was. And when we started practicing RAIN together and he started investigating, everywhere he looked he saw himself as this controlling person that had to be right, had to have his way, was incredibly selfish, was more interested in accomplishing than being with people and absolutely couldn't listen. And for some of us that's going to sound very familiar. And he had dreams, he was having dreams during this period when we were really investigating, getting intimate with what was going on, where people were closing doors on him and kicking him out of situations and just not wanting him around. So he started contacting this monster sense, and this was the deity, it was like self-aversion, that the deity was basically saying, you know, you're absolutely hideous creature. And so the question was, how, did he, how could he bring love to this monster self, you know? when he was hating it. Okay. So 
One of the things he did was he did the kind of out loud meditation that we do in the spiritual friends groups where we just start naming what's happening and listening to each other. It's like in, internally we practice by noticing what's happening and holding it with a listening attention. Well, the group is a place to do it interpersonally. You do the intrapsychic meditation in an interpersonal context. And so he at one day in particular, one evening, actually said it. He said, I feel like I'm a monster and I hate myself. He said it. And he just allowed it to be out there. He recognized and allowed it in public. And then other people started doing the same thing. Other people started saying, here's how I've been at war with myself. And so it became safer and safer to let that be in the room, the different ways that uh, people felt disgusted with themselves down on themselves. And at the end of each of the groups they would do a meditation and he'd try to do metta but it always felt fake. Like he felt like he was going through the motions like because how could he love this monster self. But after a certain number of sessions where every, it was kind of included it became less personal, his monsterhood. It was like we all have these kind of monster parts and we all have trouble with them. So he started doing metta and he found the key for him in doing metta, which means loving-kindness practice, was to feel the intention, and this is just really simple, is that he basically intended to love himself. He might not be able to, but he said my his metta prayer was, may I love myself, may I find a way to... And the sincerity of that intent started softening him. It started softening him. He kept just asking for that, may I find a way to love this, may I find a way to love this part of myself. And then the prayer went, may this place feel loved, may this monster part feel loved. And, and then, so this was the intimacy, okay? The N of RAIN is truly, he started sensing what we call non-identification there was just a part in him. It was just one of the wrathful deities, the aversive deities. It wasn't the whole of who he was. And when he could intend to embrace that part, he came home to the center of the mandala, to that spaciousness and tenderness that really expressed who he was. So that was the shift. It's no longer, this is my monster. It's this conditioning. It's this conditioning. It's not so personal. To not take it personally is freedom. This is Sri Narsargadatta. You need not correct yourself. Only set right your idea of yourself. Learn to separate yourself from the image and the mirror. Keep on remembering, I am neither the mind nor its ideas. Do it patiently and with conviction and you will surely come to the direct vision of yourself as the source of being, awake, loving, eternal, all-embracing, all-pervading. You are the infinite focused in a body, in a mind. Right now you see the form only. Try earnestly, with sincerity, and you will come to see the infinite as your true home. So this is the N in RAIN, that we practice this presence, this very intimate presence with whatever's causing difficulty. And to the degree that we fully, fully hold with presence, with kindness what's here, 
we discover this place that's no longer identified, that's free, that's whole. I'm going to practice in a few moments. Um, My hope is that the takeaway will be to shift a little from the notion that, oh, here's a problem in my life, that where the tangle is, where the deities are acting out, is really the place where freedom is possible if you bring that sincerity about staying. It's really the place. So let's, let's practice it a little together and then we'll close. So we begin and just sense this as a pause as a space to arrive in. And just as you would at the beginning of a meditation here on a... when we we start together, just feel your body, feel your breath. Your senses are awake. Feel your heart right now and just sense whatever mood is here. Rain actually begins most with exactly what's happening. Recognizing and allowing if there's tiredness, if there's judgment, restlessness, discomfort. In our meditation practice we don't need to find something that's wrong in our life to work on. The only reason I'm guiding you in this tonight is so that when something spontaneously arises you know how to be present with it. When you sit down on your own you don't have to go searching for a deity to work on. Okay? This is just practice. (laughs) Fortunately or unfortunately they appear. And the understanding is that every emotion has an intelligence, has an energy, and that when we bring our presence to it, it can unfold itself and join the stream of our life in a way that deepens our wisdom and opens our heart. So you might sense as a practice right now, just to experiment with this if there's something in your life that wants attention, where there's some sort of what I sometimes call a tangle, a place of reactivity, of stuckness. And it may not be. It may be that right now you're feeling very fluid and free, in which case to continue to bring rain, this presence, just to the experience of what's happening now. Recognize, allow, be intimate with, investigate how it is here. But should there be some tangle that you'd like to explore, let it come into the foreground for you. It may be a conflict in a relationship, 
an issue at work? Your experience as a minority in this culture? It might be an addictive behavior? It might be your reaction to what's going on in the world, the suffering of this earth. Sensing if something wants a deepened presence from you, some reaction, some fear or anger, some hurt, some confusion. One of the deities in the mandala and it may be a cluster of them that come up around a situation, that's fine too. So if something has come into your attention, let it be right in front of you. And you might go to the place, the scene in that situation that's most um, difficult, that brings up the most difficult feelings. sense what it brings up. Just recognizing, okay, so this is the stuck place and allowing it. It's kind of like acknowledging, okay, so this is where the fearful deity or angry deity is presenting. It's okay, just allow it. And let your intention be to stay, to bring an intimate kind of attention, to investigate, to open to, to feel what's here. You might sense what's the worst thing about this? What is it I'm most afraid of? What do I think is going to happen? What am I believing? Is it that there's something wrong with me? Something wrong with someone else? that I'll never be loved, I'll never be happy, that I'm going to lose something important to me. That I'll be rejected. You might or might not sense a core belief, but just to feel in your body, how does this situation feel in your body? Can you let yourself feel the place in your throat or heart or belly that most is experiencing this?
And as this man that I described in the spiritual friends group, can you sense an intention to feel what's here with kindness? So that even if you can't love it directly, that you're intending to hold this experience with kindness. It can help sometimes to put your hand on your heart and just send a message. There's different words. It can be, I'm sorry, I love you, as one healer described it. It can be, may I be free from suffering, or I care about the suffering. It's not a part of our culture so much to put our own hand on our heart, and yet it's a powerful way to deconstruct our identity, to not take it so personally by becoming the one who cares, moving from the victim to the one who cares, from the victim or oppressed, our struggling one, to the awareness that's tender. May this place feel loved. To notice what happens when you don't believe your belief. What's even possible? Who are you if you're not believing that belief? Who are you when you're offering a kind presence to something difficult. And then just let go and rest in the awareness right now that's awake and noticing and intends to be kind. This is a poem by David White called Sweet Darkness. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your womb tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you.
So I'd like to invite you as you go through this week to rather than the flinch response of, oh, something's wrong, problem, problem, to experiment with pausing when things are difficult and seeing what happens when you offer this kind of presence. It really allows us to wake up out of something too small for us into that aliveness.